In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is Once Upon a Prime by Sarah Hart. The Wondrous Connection Between Mathematics and Literature. Uh, Once Upon a Prime, when I first saw the the title, I thought it was about Amazon Prime because it looked like a box to me, but it is not. Uh, but the, the subtitle really drew me in. The Wondrous Connections Between Mathematics and Literature. We often think of art and math being very different, or creativity and math, although there really is a lot of creativity in math. But nonetheless, I'm excited to read this book and share it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Humble by Daryl Van Tonjeren. Humble, free yourself from the traps of a narcissistic world. And there's like a sub-subtitle, The Quiet Power of an Ancient Virtue. So, um, again, the title drew me in and read more about the book, and it seemed interesting. Humble humility, this characteristic, I think like many psychological characters and characteristics, we often misunderstand them. And not only that, people often want to display them. And so because of that, they they show up in a way that might not be their genuine expression. So as the initial subtitle says, free yourself from the traps of a narcissistic world. And so I agree uh, with the author, um, that we do live in a world where more and more we pride narcissism and people being proud of themselves or being arrogant, I should say, there's a genuine pride that can be healthy, but being arrogant, we value certainty, we value people saying that things are easy for them or that easy to solve, life hacks. There's a lot of ways that we are drawn to surface and we're also drawn to certainty and so humility is not something that can seem to be valued or uh, it could go into the background or it should it can be looked at as a weakness you shouldn't be humble uh, you have to be arrogant and put yourself out there and and say you know everything even if you don't or put yourself out there in a way that shows that you do not only that the uh, narcissistic world in the subtitle there when we look at social media, it's definitely contributing to narcissism as well, where we are um, making pictures and videos of ourselves and sharing them and sharing that our experience should be so important and special. And this, of course, also will attract people to present themselves in ways that gather and garner attention that often aren't. Uh, the healthiest or the most authentic and genuine ways of expressing. So I do think this is a timely book uh, in the sense that we are moving more and more towards a narcissistic world. And so we can really 
recognize the value of humility and being humble. But first, we have to get a sense of of what that means, because I think people often have a misunderstanding of what it means to be genuinely humble, to express humility. Often it is looked at as holding yourself small. So if something happens, you you say, no, no, I, I don't take any credit for it. I didn't do it. If someone says you're good at something, you say, no, I'm not good at that thing. Whatever it is, we think it's holding yourself small, saying you're not as good, saying I didn't do, my the contribution wasn't from me, whatever it is. And what I really liked is one of the early ways that he describes humility when we sometimes think of self-esteem or narcissism or having a grandiose sense of self. He says that it's, of course, not that to have a grandiose sense of self, but it's also not seeing yourself too small. It's actually having a right-sized view of yourself, meaning that you see yourself more accurately than others might, or the more accurately you see yourself, the more you're humble. So I think that's a a good uh, descriptor of or a good starting point, because I think we often do think if we're humble, that means we're, we're holding ourselves small and saying we have to be bad and you can't make a big contribution if you are humble, but I don't think that's true. And also people, as I was saying, they want to display a characteristic to get the credit for it more than they want to be that thing. So we do see people trying to make sure they come off humble, even if they aren't genuinely that way. And so when you're genuinely humble, you recognize your strengths and you don't think you have to pretend like you don't have them, but you have more of an, a more accurate sense of yourself. So um, early in the book, he describes or defines humility, and I'll read that to you. And he says that there's many different definitions of humility that researchers have come up with, but one that has uh, received relative consensus suggests that humility includes three features, an accurate self-assessment, the ability to regulate one's ego, and an orientation toward other people. Put more simply, humility is knowing yourself, checking yourself, and going beyond yourself. So knowing yourself, that's that accurate self-assessment. People who have humility, they understand themselves well. And he, he shares how what we find is that most people tend to think more highly of themselves. So if you ask them to rate how they are from, let's say, zero to 150 being average compared to most people, people tend to rate themselves as above average on most things, which really wouldn't be possible. So people who have humility, they don't think less of themselves, or they have more accurate self-assessment. And then also they check themselves, meaning they have ability to regulate their own ego, to not focus so much on themselves and be aware that of their limitations and that they are just one person amongst the planet. And the third one is an orientation toward other people. So they aren't just focused on themselves. They, they think about uh, others and have an orientation towards helping the world, doing things to make the world a better place, focusing on relationships and others as well. And so, as always, even with that one, um, he does talk about how we can go too extreme in the other direction. And it's something I've talked about before, that for many people, they have a a difficult time putting themselves in other people's shoes, having that empathy to have themselves in someone else's shoes and experience 
what they might ex be experiencing. But there are some people that go the other extreme. And so for them, the, they very easily put themselves in other people's shoes. They have a hard time staying in their own shoes or paying attention to their own feelings and wants and making those important enough. So we do always have to um, keep in mind the balance is more important than just saying it's always good to be one way or the other. And actually, um, later in the book, he talked about how wisdom uh, is sometimes described as the virtue that helps us determine which value is most important at that given time, because oftentimes values can seem to contradict, okay, helping others, but make sure I take care of myself. How do I know which one is called for and to what degree in this moment? Um, but he also talks about types of humility. So uh, we can look at different types of humility. So the first one he describes as relational humility. So here the focus is on people or other people, and we experience it in relationships and how it's expressed as being other-oriented and checking one's ego. So in relational humility, uh, in our relationships and gen in general, and how we interact with the world, we think of others uh, and making sure they're okay, not just thinking of ourselves. Then there's intellectual humility, which is about ideas. And so this is being open to new insights and seeking learning. And I think this is a, a big one that we see in today's day and age where we are bombarded by people who are telling us they know, as I was saying earlier, the solutions to life problems. They know uh, the solutions to political problems. The other side is stupid and crazy and immoral, and we are the good ones. So we definitely see a lot of movement away from intellectual humility. And we also play a part in that because as the consumers, we are drawn towards people who agree with us, who make us feel that we're so right and the other side is so wrong, that take away our uncertainty if we have any about the things we might think about. So intellectual humility is a tough one to hold on to because it could mean I believe what I believe, I think what I think, but I know that it's not some ultimate truth and I'm open to learning. I'm open to being proven wrong, a very difficult thing. We don't like to be wrong. It doesn't feel good. But to have intellectual humility means I have to be open to being proven wrong. And then we also have cultural humility. So this is, of course, related to our culture and cultural interactions. And here we are learning from others and not viewing one's own culture as superior. Another difficult one. When we um, think about culture, sometimes we think of music and language and food and things of that sort, but it's of course much bigger than that, includes morals and values, and what is the right way and wrong way of living? What is the right and wrong for gender roles? And a host of other very important factors. And so when we are raised in a certain culture and these values are made to feel so important and almost like the only ones, it could seem that someone living differently from us is doing it wrong. They are immoral. They don't have values. They lack culture, even sometimes we'll say it in that way, just because their culture is different from ours. So to have cultural humility means I, I could recognize my own culture and even the good in it, but I don't see it as superior to other people's culture. And we see people get caught up in this a lot, that um, we are you know, better. I, I see Iranians do it all the time, talking about how our culture makes us better than other people. But 
Uh, this really gets us in trouble and closes our minds and our um, ability to connect and relate to other people because we put our other people down to put ourselves up. And the last one is of the four types of humility, existential humility. And so this is related to life's ultimate questions. And we might experience feeling small relative to nature, the universe, God, depending on what you believe in. And we might also express this, as he puts it, feeling grateful to something larger than oneself. And so in the book, he um, goes through different ways that we can also try to get more, become more uh, humble and includes things like seeking feedback, which is very difficult. So if we want to be humble and to understand ourselves, as I was saying that, as I was saying that um, humility involves knowing my right size, who I am, my right abilities to an accurate degree of self-assessment, then I have to be open to receiving feedback. Because if not, we know we have so many biases where we see ourselves as better than we are. We see um, things that we do well, that was because I did well. If it didn't go well, well, that was bad luck or something unfair. But with other people, we do the opposite. If they make a mistake, we think that's who they are. And if they do well, they got lucky or, you know, something else happened. So we have to be open to receiving feedback and reducing our defensiveness. He also shares that building empathy can be critical here as well. So in the book, he does share some tools, mindsets, things we can think about in order to increase the humility that we have. And then he does also share, well, what's good about humility or what good does it do us? People who have more genuine humility, again, this is not the putting myself down, um, trying to look small in front of other people, even if I have other intentions, the genuine humility that we want to cultivate, we, those people feel better, feel more meaningful lives. Um, they experience more meaningful lives. They also have better relationships. So we see that uh, people like to be in relationships, whether it's friendships or romantic relationships, with people who are more humble, who experience humility. And that would make sense. The opposite of that being narcissistic, we know, is a uh, very classic example of someone who's difficult to be in a relationship with because they lack empathy, they focus on themselves. So when someone is humble, we appreciate that in our partner, and it's something definitely to look for in, in your partner. Again, a genuine humility, not they just say certain things in front of people to make themselves sound humble, but the actual expression of it. So I, I really did enjoy this book because of this focus on a, uh, a concept, a characteristic that might not get a lot of attention or people might go away from because today's world more and more is all about presenting yourself as better than others, better than even you are, which is the opposite of humility. And that being humble is weak and not a good thing, but he actually shows the strength of humility and how we all would benefit by uh, cultivating it more in our lives and as a society. So I really appreciated that perspective. I hadn't seen a book on this topic, which is why it drew my attention. So I, I do recommend it. I think it does have some interesting insights, and I might share some more of them in the next segment. Uh, again, the book is Humble by Daryl Van Tongeren. Humble, free yourself from the traps of a narcissistic world, the quiet power of an ancient virtue. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
Continuing the discussion on the book Humble by Daryl Van Tonderen, and even I have to um, humbly say that I'm not sure I'm saying his name correctly. At one time I was going to say Tongeren, and I was going to say Tondren. I'll stick with that one for now, uh, but apologies to the author on that. Um, wanted to come to some things he mentions at the end of the book that I thought were quite powerful, quite powerful um, about humility and, and thinking about it in a bigger picture kind of way. But before I do, um, I did want to reiterate this this thought that we we tend to be drawn to people who are so certain about things. But often when you look at people who are actually experts in a field, they are far less certain and they are drawn to people who can express strong ideas and thoughts but recognize the limitations of it because someone who knows the strength of their idea will also recognize the weakness of their ideas. And uh, there is no idea that is foolproof or is 100% true or will always be true. Just look throughout history how often uh, things were known to be certain, in quotes, um, but turned out not to be. So um, be aware of that, that we are drawn to it because it feels better. Uncertainty doesn't feel good. Uh, And as part of this existential humility or this intellectual humility is to be able to sit with not knowing that we would like to know smaller things, even uh, information, knowledge, theories about how things work or why they are the way they are, but also bigger things of, you know, is there life after death or why are we here or, you know, what's going to happen in 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, things that we can't know. We understandably want certainty because that feels better, takes away that anxiety, but we would do better or we're living a more realistic life if we're okay with that not knowing. So just like um, humility involves having an accurate self-assessment, seeing yourself the right size, uh, you know, I think it also is having an accurate reality uh, orientation or reality connection, meaning that you see the world as it is as much as possible and we don't search for fake certainties or ways of quelling our anxiety to just feel better even if it's not the truth. So be very beware of people who are telling you they know something for sure, they have all the answers or that their theory is foolproof. And even ask yourself uh, when you believe something, even though we tend to think, well, I'm believing it based on the merits of the argument. Um, ask yourself, why might I want to believe this thing to be true? You know, whether it's moral things, political things, whatever it might be. And you often might find some motivations that you, you can't deny. It doesn't mean that you're wrong to think that way or you have to change your mind, but it can give you a more accurate understanding of even why you believe what you believe. Uh, at the end of the book here, he does talk about how as humans, we have these brains that can do things that, as far as we know, other animals can't do, um, including, as he puts it, the capability for self-awareness and the ability to think symbolically. However, this is is great. It allows us to do lots of things, but it also, as he says, uh, gives us the burden of knowing that one day we're going to die, which is a very difficult thing. We can think about that or be aware of that in ways that uh, could be difficult this is a big existential anxiety, death anxiety, that we almost all, I would say actually we all have to varying degrees. It's part of being 
human. And so this itself can be very humbling. And actually to avoid that, and actually what people do is avoiding that, to me is is an arrogant thing that we sometimes do that we can we either avoid thinking about death or somehow think we can outsmart death and we do see people scientists even who are involved in this and I, I can't say i can predict what science will one day be able to do but there is a sense of not not wanting to die which we all have but almost in a way of trying to deny that death and so um we we tend to think there's some way we can avoid that but not only that we might even try to come up with ways to avoid thinking about that by trying to be enough in other ways. So um, we focus on these narcissistic drives of, as he talks about having a bigger bank account or house or having a certain amount of money or fame, that that will somehow give us this sense of being okay uh, and okay forever. But it doesn't do that. He actually shared a an analogy that I really liked. I've shared um, a thought about this, but never heard it quite like this by the Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr. All along our ladder was leaning against the wrong house. So you're climbing and you're trying so hard to get somewhere, but all along your, your ladder was leaning against the wrong house. And that's often how I see what we do as human beings and what culture is pushing us to do right now in society is to do things that don't actually make us feel happy and uh, content and leave a meaningful life so we keep striving towards something that even if you make it to the top it's actually not going to make you happy and so he shares that what he says the biggest uh, cultural myth about meaning that we have is that we will always have more time so he says there will always be more time that's this myth that we tell ourselves that i'll always have more time to to do the good thing or to work on something or to do my big project or, you know, do something creative to work on my relationships, whatever it might be, we tend to always think we'll have more time to do it, that there will always be more time. And this is something you've heard me talk about many times uh, on the show over the recent years. Um, when I recognize myself, um, how important it is to talk about it, that if we don't take the reality of our death seriously enough we won't take our lives seriously enough because we'll always have this misconception that there will be more time so there's no rush and doing the difficult things will always feel difficult so it'll never feel like the right time to do it it'll always feel like later will be better because it doesn't feel right now there might be a future time where it's going to feel right rather than recognizing that the difficult things will always be hard and so because of that we have to take action when it doesn't feel right, because that's the only time we'll ever have to do it. So I, I appreciated um, his sharing some of these insights and these thoughts about how it is also a humbling uh, experience to recognize that we want to think we will live forever, or we don't, we won't die, or we don't want to think about that. And we all do this in different ways. But again, if we're being accurate in our self-assessment, it's that. Our time is finite. And so it encourages us to do the things that we're thinking we will uh, do later, but also to have a sense of gratefulness, gratitude for every day that we do have, because we don't know when we'll have or how many more moments we'll have. So we can be grateful for the ones uh, we are, are currently experiencing. And I think that is, that's wonderful. So 
Um, he says here near the end of the book, humility gives life meaning in which each moment matters, where we choose love over fear and authenticity over perfection, where we are curious to learn and open to grow, and where we are unafraid of the hard work required to bring about a just future. And when we don't know when our last day will come, humility ensures that we are making the most of each moment, living more authentically and lovingly, and making the lives of others better and richer each day. So I really appreciated his his thoughts, there's insights uh, about really valuing and cherishing each moment that we have, although he, he does share, you know, what we want to value. So it's not just being in only this moment, but thinking about what we're doing with our lives and how we want to live our lives and to make the best use of that so that we do feel good and content about how we've experienced it, that we um, aren't just happy in each given moment, but live a life that we are, are content and feel content about. So I really appreciated that uh, being the way that he ended the book to, to share that that important message about that, something for us all to consider and to, to keep in mind and to, to cultivate humility in our lives and our relationships. And we can get how someone who is humble would be someone good to be in a relationship with because he shares in the book they are, they do tend to be more grateful. And not only that, they tend to be more forgiving. People who are humble can recognize their own flaws, their own contribution to even whatever that situation is that they're upset about, Uh, but also remember times where they've done wrong and been the wrong one interaction or the more wrong one in an interaction to not be so hard on the person that they are dealing with. So humility and forgiveness go hand in hand. And also we tend to forgive people who are humble more because we see that they recognize their shortcomings or what they might have done and it makes it easier to forgive them if someone presents as never being wrong well it's a lot harder to forgive them because we see that defensiveness and it makes us want to break through it but if someone has that guard down it makes it easier for us not to want to fight them or get revenge to just try to resolve it and see that um, if they made a mistake we can forgive them so again humility is something that we can all cultivate more of in our life and beware of the, the fake humility of just virtue signaling or trying to look a certain way, but the genuine humility that means I know who I am, I can keep that ego in check, and I can be focused on others as well. Okay, let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The last segment, continuing on this theme of humility, being humble, um, and I, I mentioned intellectual humility. I wanted to share uh, an experience I had this weekend that made me aware as I was reading this book and, and experiencing what I'll share of really the value of, of intellectual humility or also how important it is because of what we're up against. So um, from two different people that I know, they were at different times I talked to them and they are very much on different sides of the political spectrum, one much more right-leaning and one much more left-leaning, and not, I would say, extreme. Um, but I was aware, and definitely I've been guilty of it myself, and am still, you know, to think about that humility, we have to recognize when we are lacking in that humility in whatever uh, concept or 
um, area of life it is. But hearing them talk in such a short time apart um, in separate conversations and hearing how certain they were uh, about um, different political issues, the same ones at times, was eye-opening because they're both people I think are intelligent and um, people I care for and like, but their views are very different. And so uh, it was, you know, of course, a lot of things were, were on display there. One was that, of course, like most of us, they were likely exposing themselves and being exposed to news sources, media, and information that confirms what they already believe and makes them feel even more strongly that they're right and the other side is wrong. And so uh, when they're discussing what they thought, they presented as, as fact as we almost all do, which I think is both because of what we're being exposed to and also that there is this sense that that's how you have to think about things or else you don't really believe it. Uh, and even uh, he shares in the book how people who have intellectual humility and hum are humble people, they don't think that people who uh, change their mind are wishy-washy or flip-floppers. They recognize that one, people's thoughts, ideas will evolve, but also if they come across new information, it would make sense for their ideas to, to change or what they think to change. Now, I've seen this in a lot of American politics where the politician over time has changed their position on something. They might be called a flip-flopper, but really um, it often will, could actually express something good, a intellectual humility, an ability to take in and take on new information and then to change their mind. That's actually quite good. If you never change your mind, that's not a good thing. That's not a sign of strength. That's a sign of defensiveness and that you're not taking in new information and being open to learning and open to being wrong. Um, I forgot which book it was in, but it was saying something like, if I think of myself a year ago compared to today, not that I have to think of myself as stupid, but hopefully I think of myself as less smart or that I was wrong or more wrong about things than I am today. If not, what was I doing this last year from an intellectual perspective? I hopefully was learning and thinking about things and questioning and challenging my, my thoughts and ideas in order to grow. If not, it was a waste. So I should also then recognize that, which would encourage some intellectual humility, that whatever I think I know and uh, my ideas and the knowledge I have now, one year from now, I'll look back on and think, oh, I've learned a lot and that was not very much. So having that humility that I was wrong before, I'll be wrong again. I will uh, change my mind before I will change my mind again. So whatever I think and believe now, I don't want to think of it as so firm and factual. And also I don't want to identify so much with it. That's part of what uh, is happening with politics. I, I know identity politics, we hear a lot about I think what's even more concerning is identifying with your politics, meaning that you see that you are so Republican or Democrat, so liberal or so conservative, or, um, you know, it's so much a part of who you are that if the identity or sorry, the, the information gets challenged or the idea gets challenged, it feels like someone is challenging you. And even there was some uh, study where th the way they presented the information was a bit uh, you could say dramatic, but want to try to make a point. But it said that if you're um, someone attacks your political identity 
or your political ideology, uh, the brain looks like you're being attacked by a bear, basically. So it feels almost life-threatening. And to me, this is a sense of when your identity gets challenged or it feels like it's being potentially taken down and threatened, it could feel like your life is being threatened. It's like you're not existing. So the more you identify with your politics or a certain belief that defines you, it's going to make it a lot harder for you to be open to new information because any challenge to it is going to be a challenge to you. It's a threat to you at your core, not just something you think or believe. So we have to be uh, aware of that. And so, as I said, listening to two different people share these different perspectives, um, it was a reminder to myself of, okay, I am like this too in lots of ways. I think I know things that I want to be aware are, are definitely biased or I have some motivation to think that way. I um, think the other side is very wrong about things and it probably feels good for me to, to think that way and to feel that I'm so certain and they're so wrong makes me feel good because what I'm doing is I'm projecting some of my uncertainty onto them. So because I know I can't be so sure about many of the things I believe and think about things, I don't like that feeling and it's easier for me to put that onto other people. So they're so wrong and I'm all right. They're all wrong. I'm all right. And that way I know that I have nothing to worry about, but that's just a way of fooling myself into taking away my anxiety, but it's not the truth. I actually appreciated something that uh, Daryl Van Tondren recommends in the book about intellectual humility. He had some different exercises or types of tips, and I think they're very difficult things to actually do, like a lot of good advice, easy to say or simple to say and even simple to do, but also hard to do because it makes us feel uncomfortable. So it included things like um, exposing yourself to news sources that are opposite of what you tend to do. So if you're, let's say, in the United States and liberal, well, then listen to, to Fox News a little bit. And if you're um, conservative, listen to MSNBC a little bit. And be aware that you likely will quickly make, oh, this is so biased and wrong. Look how you know, stupid this is and how they're twisting the facts. But likely those other people will look at your news source and think the same thing. So exposing yourself to... Um, different sources of information. I think that is a good idea. It feels very uncomfortable. Again, it would seem like, okay, it's just watching uh, something different than what you usually watch, but it can make you feel bad because it starts to threaten your certainty about things and that doesn't feel good. Another thing you can do is to actually have conversations with people who um, you have differing views with. Conversations, not debates, and definitely not uh bitter arguments where you're trying to convince each other and turns into insults, but really just hearing their perspectives. Again, we'd rather think that people on the other side uh, are stupid and immoral, and we hear this a lot in the United States. I've heard from both sides that the people on the other side of the political spectrum, they hate America, and they actually want bad for the country, and they want some you know, horrible result for the country. Could there be some people that are that way? Of course, I, I can imagine out of 300 million people, there are such a diversity of intentions and things that people have. Yeah, that could be some people, but in my uh, estimation, it'd be a very, very, very small percentage of the population has anything close to that kind of mindset. Most people think that what they want for the country and what they want politically is good and is the right thing. So they're not actually out there to just make, uh, you know, 
burn this thing to the ground. They think the other side is doing that and they're trying to help. So um, if you actually talk to someone in a respectful way and not just turn them into an enemy or someone for you to try to beat up on in a verbal way, um, you'll actually see, okay, the people on the other side are human beings just like me and they have ideas and probably most of them are sensible. They might have different perspectives or value some different things, but they aren't this this evil um, group of people, especially when we think it's like half of the country, essentially, viewing one way or the other, voting one way or the other. It's a pretty big uh, leap to say that half the country is evil or immoral or wants bad for the country. I don't think that would make a lot of sense. Um, another thing you can do is to argue against yourself, which, and he of course says, if you're doing that with humility, to, to strongly do that, not just set up straw men arguments and knock them down, but really, how, why might you be wrong? And it doesn't feel good. You know, I did think about it as I was reading that part. Uh, and I realized it doesn't feel good to do that because it feels nice to feel certain, to be sure we are right. Then when you start to argue against yourself, you can see that, oh, there might be ways that I'm wrong or there might be holes in my argument or ways of, of thinking. And so, of course, uh, as good as we try, we likely won't be able to challenge ourselves so strongly, but uh, we want to converse with people on the other side and really hear what they have to say. And really, and then it might lead to your own ideas getting stronger because you see what the opponents are saying, but it also could lead to you changing your mind and you have to be open to that. And he shared some sentiments um, similar to things uh, we've discussed on the show about open-mindedness that, uh, you know, even when I talk about intellectual humility, many, many people or most people probably will think that they are intellectually humble. Um, again, that better than average effect. We all, most of us think that we're better at most things than we are and that we're better than average. So most people think they're open-minded. And if you, yeah, if you give me a convincing argument, I'll change my mind. I'm, I'm smart. I'm, I'm a, you know, I use my rational mind. So if you give me a good argument, I'm going to change my mind. But most of the time, that's not the case. We like believing what we believe. And so most people think they're open-minded. Um, and the way I always see it is that they are open-minded about things they think they should be open-minded about. And the things that they're not open about, they think those things are true and that it's actually bad to be open-minded about that. So, you know, they it's like saying two plus two, I'm not open-minded about it. It's four. And so when you feel like it's definitely right, you think that it's right to be closed-minded about it. So uh, I've heard it from so many people, or I've never heard someone say I'm closed-minded. You probably have never heard someone say that before because they think if they're not open about something, it's because it's wrong. It's morally wrong. It's unnatural, whatever that thing may be. So again, we have to recognize I'm describing like, oh, other people, other people, but that's you and that's also me. I do this. I tend to believe I'm right even when I'm not sure, or I tend to pin the other side as wrong because it feels safer to put all the uncertainty into them as the wrong one and I'm the all right one and I can feel comfort in that. So uh, it, it was a humble pill to swallow reading this book on humility where we recognize that uh, it's easy to think it's other people that have the problem but we are the ones that want to focus on ourselves and make sure that that we are growing in that regard so uh, again I did really enjoy this book a concept that I um, of course no one thinks humility 
uh, we, we think it's a good thing. We want to instill it, even if society says that uh, being uh, promoting yourself is the right way. We might think, okay, I'm humble, or we want to be humble, but really understanding it in a deeper way. What is humility? What does it look like? What doesn't it look like? Uh, really, for me, was eye-opening that we see ourselves as we are. You don't have to hold yourself small or pretend like you're less than you are to be a humble person. It means knowing who you are, owning your strengths, but also owning your weaknesses and not being afraid to show that, having the security to be who you truly are. And so the only way we can become our authentic self is to actually have a humble standpoint or starting point. So again, the book I discussed tonight was Humble by Daryl Van Tondren. Humble, free yourself from the traps of a narcissistic world, the quiet power of an ancient virtue. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Razale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Olakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.